following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Romans chapter 14, and we are going to, our text for today, as you can see on the screen, is verses 1 through 4. Romans 14, verses 1 through 4. And so let's go ahead and read this passage. So Romans 14, verse 1 says, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Well, I I went to a conservative Christian college, and, and, and at that college I was pretty much surrounded by other kids who all came from a similar type of background, other conservative churches, and so it was kind of a unique college setting from the standpoint of the fact that we were a fairly... A similar group of people with similar backgrounds compared to just about any other kind of college context you would be in. But just because we all came from different backgrounds did not mean that we all just saw eye to eye and we never argued about anything. No. You know, like college kids do, we think we got the world figured out and we argued constantly about everything from music to modesty standards to music to Bible translations, to movies, to, to music again, or, and on to, to hairstyles, and better guess it, you know, guess it again, music. We just argued and argued about this and that and this and that all the time. And in a lot of those debates about all those various convictions and standards, every debate seemed like would come back to either 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10, or the chapters before us, Romans 14 and 15. And so that's because uh, these are the two main passages in the New Testament regarding what we oftentimes call Christian liberty. And uh, they say a lot about how we deal with differences among the church. And they're filled with some really practical help, really practical help for, for one of the hardest parts of living in unity as Christians. And that is, what do we do when we come to Scriptures and we arrive at different conclusions, and we got to figure out a way to get along. What do we do when we disagree? And so, we're jumping into a really helpful section of the Scriptures as far as how we think about dealing with differences. But, but you know what I learned really quickly, listening to all those debates? That while everyone loves Romans 14 and 15, most people do a terrible job of applying it to their situation. So, so on the one hand, you know, I, I listen to a lot of people use these chapters as a weapon against anyone who would ever challenge their conviction. So it goes like this. Well, God says in verse 3, don't judge. So, so don't you dare question anything that I think, because if you question me, then you're a judgmental legalist. And on the other hand, the conservative student would turn around and say, well, 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 you're not supposed to make me stumble. And so, 
if you're not supposed to make me stumble, then my music is the only music we can listen to, and my Bible is the only Bible that we can read. Now, of course, everyone just accepted those arguments, and we all got along, and, and everything was fine. Well, of course not. You know, the debate just gets hotter and hotter, and people go back and forth. And why is that? Well, it's because neither side was really all that interested in loving the other, and frankly, not that interested in in being careful in their application of Scripture. They just wanted to do what they wanted to do, and they wanted to be comfortable doing what they wanted. So rather than really understanding Paul's point here, they just jumped to the application that fit their agenda and their desires. Now, we don't want to do that. We want to honor the Lord. We, we want to love each other well, and we want to pursue God-honoring unity as a congregation here at LifePoint. But, but if that's going to happen, you have to understand that the big picture of this section, so probably more than any other section in the book of Romans, you really have to understand the context, what's going on in Rome, if you're going to understand what Paul is saying and, and how to accurately apply it to your life. You have to understand the story that the big picture before you're going to be ready to make good application of this section. So, so that's our goal. We, we want to understand the story today so that we can understand what God is saying to us and so that we can honor Him as we strive to get along, to love each other, even when we don't quite agree. So we have to begin today by asking, what is at stake in Romans 14 and 15. Not, it's not all of chapter 15. Really, this section goes through chapter 15, verse 13. So, so, so we're going to spend a little more time than normal today kind of, to, kind of laying a background because it really is crucial to making good applications. So first of all, what's going on here? Well, very simply, the church was divided over questions about food, holy days, and about drinking wine. So, so notice again what Paul says in verse 2. He says, one person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. So the church was divided over a godly diet. Some of the church thought, we can eat anything. And other people, bless their souls, were only eating vegetables. We'll leave that alone. And then notice, notice verse 5, right? Verse 5 says, One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. So so there's controversy as well over the observance of holy days. Do we observe these days or do we leave them alone? And then uh, jumping down uh, to verse 17, verse 17 says, The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And then verse 21 says, It is not good to eat meat or to drink wine, or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. So, so it's not just that they were fighting over what was on their plates. It's apparent that they're also arguing over what's in their cups. And those arguments, we, we might think, well, that's silly stuff. Why would they all get up in arms and have these huge debates over what they're eating and drinking and whether or not to observe holy days? But you know what? Just get a few ladies together, a few moms together, and you ask them, What is the best diet for your kids? Or what do you think about holiday traditions? And World War III can blow up really quickly. I mean, we have arguments like this all the time, and sometimes they can get contentious. 
So, so this situation is not that different from ours. But, but you might wonder, well, well, why, though? Why specifically were these sources of debates? And so, to put it very simply, the church was divided over Jewish scruples. This is a Jew-Gentile debate. Now, now it's important that you, you get that because a lot of times, a lot of the reason why people misapply this section is that because they confuse the situation in Rome with the situation that was taking was going on at Corinth. So, so in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, Paul talks there about a controversy regarding food sacrificed to idols. So there are people in the church at Corinth who believed that, that any meat that had been involved in pagan worship, that there was some sort of, of spiritual presence in that meat. And then others in the church said, no, that's ridiculous because idols aren't real. And so that's the controversy that's going on there. But there's nothing in the book of Romans about idols. Idolatry is not involved in this situation. No, uh, this is a situation that has to do with obeying parts of the law of Moses. Now, why do I say that? Well, well first of all, because Paul closes the section with, with, a, with a call for Jew and Gentile unity. So, so look, at, look at chapter 15, verse 8. He says, For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision, or the Jews, on behalf of the truth of God, to confirm the promises given to the fathers, and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. And, and he continues that call for Jew-Gentile unity down through the, the end of the section in verse 13. Now, now, why does he go there at the close of that section? Well, well, it's because this is a controversy between Jews and Gentiles primarily. Another reason that, that I say that this is about Jewish scruples is because chapter 14, verse 14, uh, also well, it references uncleanness. So chapter 14, verse 14 says, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. So what Paul does there is he uses a word that, that in Judaism was a technical term for something that was clean or unclean based on Old Testament purity laws. So, so that's a really clear reference to the fact that, that Paul's concern here has to do with, with purity laws in the Old Testament. And so, specifically... It seems that the church was divided over kosher foods and over Jewish holy days. Those are the particular rubs uh, within the church. And now, now obviously, now, now as soon as you hear that, you, think, you might think, well, well, why would a Jew think that he can only eat vegetables? Because, you know, the law said a lot about eating meat. And in fact, eating meat was a big part of, of various Jewish festivals. Well, well, it seems to be going on is that, yes, the Jews could eat meat, but any meat that a Jew ate had to be butchered according to certain purity laws in the Old Testament. Today we call that kosher. So there's kosher meat and there's unkosher meat, and there's other items that are kosher and unkosher. And here's the problem. If you were a Jew living outside of Palestine, like you're living in Rome, and if there's no Jewish butchers around and you have to go buy meat from a Gentile butcher, 
Well, then almost certainly the Gentile butcher is not being careful to butcher that animal according to the laws of Moses. And so since they didn't have any access to to kosher meats, well, then they would just choose to eat vegetables only and not eat meat. And and that tradition really goes all the way back to Daniel. Because when Daniel uh, was taken into captivity to Babylon, uh, Daniel 1 verse 8 says that Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. No, instead, what did he do? He only ate vegetables and he only drank water to make sure that he followed these purity standards. So, so that's the concern of these Jewish Christians. But, but the Gentile believers, and, and frankly, some of the Jews among them, because, because Paul includes himself, he's a Jew, but he includes himself with the strong, some of them, they understood that Christ has freed us from those laws. We, we are not bound to the Old Testament law anymore. And, and so, and, and we've talked about that, right? We've talked about that in Romans chapter 7, other places that we are not bound by the law. But, but some of these Jews were having a really hard time letting go of that. Their conscience would not let them eat meat that, or, or drink wine that was not kosher. They felt like they had to observe these holy days. So just imagine the church potluck at the church in Rome. You know, Joe Gentile, he shows up with this massive tray of smoked pulled pork. And he's over here, and so you got the church potluck, they pray, they start, and over here on one side of the room, and the Gentiles, and they are chowing down on this this smoked pork, and they're loving it, they're having a good time. And then over here on the other side of the room, the Jews are eating their broccoli and carrots. And you can cut the tension with a knife. You know, the Jews, they are furious that Joe Gentile would have the gall to bring that smoked pork to the church potluck. Isn't he going to be considerate? Doesn't he know that's a problem? And then Joe Gentile, he looks over at these Jews and he's like, he, I mean, he can see the glares. And he's like, stop judging me. You guys are ridiculous. And so they're kind of having this stare off. And then... You know, little Johnny Jew gets a whiff of that smoked pork. And then he looks down at his broccoli and carrots. And he's like, Mom, I want that. And he starts throwing a fit. And his mom, Judy Jew, she's had enough. And she marches over to Joe Gentile and she gives him a piece of her mind. Don't you know what you're making? You're, you're making this so difficult. And tension blows up and everything's crazy. And so we get that. It's a mess. And it's sad, right? Because this this meal that's supposed to be a time of fellowship and unity has turned into a war. And frankly, we can all relate to some extent, hopefully not in the church, but we've been in those kinds of settings where, where people are at each other's throats and you don't know what to do. And adding to the complexity of the situation, the text is very clear that the strong, or the Gentiles in this case, for the most part, were right, and the weak were wrong. Now, now that's a really important part of the story that, that my, my college friends oftentimes missed. So, so my less conservative friends would, would thought, you know, thought that when we talk about Christian liberty, well, well, they just equated Christian liberty with meaning God tells me I can do whatever I want. You know, so, so Christian liberty means 
There's this massive spectrum of room for me to do whatever I think is okay, and no one can ever question me, no one can ever push back. But a really important piece of this section of Scripture is that Paul is very clear that one side had the more accurate standard than the other. And look at what he says in verse 14. He says, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. So Paul clearly puts himself with a strong, and he says that the Jews are are not thinking, or they're not applying the gospel quite correctly here. The strong are right. God has freed us from the law. We don't need to obey these purity laws or observe these Old Testament holy days. Now, folks, that's a really important truth to remember as we walk through this, this passage. And, and we'll, we'll talk about that a whole lot more as we go. So, so, but despite that, I, I also would just want to emphasize that the gospel was not threatened. Now, that's really important to know, that, that, that these Jews, while well, well, they're observing these kosher laws and observing these holy days, they are not depending on those things for their salvation. They believe the gospel. They were trusting in Christ alone for their salvation, but their conscience was bound by these laws. And so while they are weak, they are not disobedient. And while they are, feel like they need to obey these things, they're not trusting in them for their salvation. So, so no one is questioning the gospel here. No one is, is, is just outright rebelling against God's will. And, and so all of that, and so that's really important because, because if those things were not true, Paul would have a very different response. So like his attitude here is very different than what you see in Galatians where people were doing these things, but doing them as a basis of their salvation. And, and Paul has a very different response here than where people are outright disobeying God. So, so folks, all of that is really important for applying this section well. And in particular, I want to emphasize at the outset that Paul's point in these two chapters is not, it is not to define what is right or wrong, or to give you principles for determining your convictions and standards, all right? That's really important. So so if you come to Romans 14 and 15 trying to find out which movies and music you can watch and listen to, you are going to mess up. Because that's not Paul's point. All right? And he certainly, he certainly doesn't just open wide the gate in these chapters for you to do whatever you feel like doing. So don't come to these two chapters to determine your convictions. If, if you want to determine your convictions, there's plenty of other places in Scripture you can go that talk about the difference between holiness and worldliness, which help you understand what God loves and what God hates. There's lots of other passages to do that. This, that's not Paul's point here. And so don't try and do that, all right? We are not going to spend the next few weeks talking about which movies and music and hairstyles and Bible translations are right and wrong. No, no rather, the point of this section, really, really the, the lesson that we learn from this passage is that God here teaches Christians how to pursue unity when we have different but biblically permissible convictions. So the point here is not to define the conviction. The point is, how do we get along when we have these differences that are within 
the framework, within the realm of what God says is permissible. And that issue is a vital issue to your life as a Christian. It's a vital issue to, your, to our life as a church. If we're going to have unity, if we're going to serve the Lord and make an impact in our community, then we need to know how to deal with this. So, so that said, let's jump into the first four verses of Romans chapter 14, because Paul gets right to the point. In verses 1 through 4, and really the entire section teach us that the challenge today is to love well and leave the rest to God. Love well and leave the rest to God. So, so the first, notice first in, in verses 1 through, uh, the first part of verse 3, that we are to love with perspective. So it's been a while since we read it. So let's read again. Paul says in verse 1, Now accept the one who is weak in faith. So he's speaking to the strong, the Gentiles. He tells them to accept the weak in faith, the Jew who is abiding by these Jewish laws, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. I see four practical challenges in that section. First of all, God challenges you to embrace your brothers and sisters. Again, he begins the whole section by saying, accept the one who is weak in faith. So remember here that Paul is speaking to the strong, all right? And, and I think it's pretty clear from the text that these are the people in majority. They have, might have been in, in a large majority in the church. They were right. And, and who do they have on their side? They have Paul on their side. So if you're the strong, it would be really tempting to just bulldoze over the weak. I mean, get over it. Move on. You're wrong. Paul's on our side, right? You know the feeling. If you ever, you know, you want to do something with your friends, it's going to be really fun. But you've got this one friend that you, you know that if you're going to go do this thing with your other three friends, you've got to somehow keep it a secret from this friend over here. Because she can't, in good conscience, participate in what you want to do. Well, what do you do? Do you leave that friend in the cold? Well, she's being a prude anyway, and it's going to be so fun. Or do you love her sacrificially? Well, God says, accept the one who is weak in faith. And he says it again in chapter 15, verse 7. He says, therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. So just think for a moment how Jesus accepts you. Jesus is patient with your ignorance. And he endures every quirk that you have. And God here commands you to accept your brothers and sisters in Christ in the church the same way that Jesus accepts you. Now you might say, well, pastor, but I'm right and he's wrong. He's being so stubborn and obnoxious. I'm done with him. But aren't you glad that God is not so harsh with you when you are wrong, when your thinking is off? 
Now, Paul, Paul here doesn't pretend like the weak have it all together. He says they are weak in faith. So, so they're struggling to, to fully rest in the freedom from the law that Jesus provided in his death and resurrection. That is not insignificant. But still, still, God commands the strong to accept the weak. You know, I think it's interesting here. You know, in our day, you know what we would do in 21st century America? We would just divide into two churches. That's easier. You know, let's have a church over here where we just all get along and no one's going to judge us. And then let's have our church over here, our little cluster of people that, that think just like each other, and, and we'll just all be happy or separate. But that's not even an option in Paul's mind. The strong are to accept the weak. So what about you? Are you quick to get frustrated and quick to write people off? Do you patiently endure and love? Or do you just quickly close yourself off from certain people? And by the way, this is important not just when we have differing convictions, but, but with most other conflicts. When you have a conflict, be patient. Think the best. Be quick to accept and very slow to dismiss. So embrace your brothers and sisters. And then the second challenge here is to embrace them without qualification. Now, now the qualifier at the end of verse 1 would be funny if it were not all too common. So again, verse 1 says, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. So you can, you know, I mean, we can see how this goes, right? I mean, Paul says, accept your brothers and sisters. And, and so this one strong guy says, sure, I'll have Judy Jew over for dinner. And I'm going to fix her. I'm going to tell her how wrong she is. I'm going to tell her what she's doing. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going I'm to fix everything that's wrong with this lady. I'm going to change her mind about this silly standard. But that's not the point. And frankly, most of the time, it's not truly loving her or accepting her. It's putting an unnecessary qualification on your love and acceptance. Now, now I want to be very clear here that, that Paul is not forbidding us from ever pushing people to have better convictions or to think better. You, you, and, and as well, I want to be clear, that you shouldn't think that anyone who ever challenges you or anyone who ever pushes you to think better is just necessarily a judgmental legalist. And we do that all the time. I mean, I've seen that over and over and over. You know, well, there's just a whole bunch of legalists over there because so-and-so challenged me about how I'm doing this or that. And so that's not what's going on here. We, we should push each other. I mean, Paul pushes people all the time. Because oftentimes that's the best way to love. But let's also be honest and say that a lot of the time when we push people specifically to lower their standards, it has a whole lot more to do with my comfort than it actually has to do with loving that person well. We don't like conflict. And so because we don't like conflict, we're going to get this person to think like I do. You're tired of deferring. You're tired of the discomfort. It's about you, not them. So God says that if someone has a biblically permissible standard, your, your general stance is not to fix them. 
Your general stance is to love and support them. So, so here's a practical example, all right? There's a lot of Christians in our, and I, think, I don't think it's going to be too big of a controversy here. There's a lot of Christians in our nation that would consider themselves to be Sabbatarians, right? And by Sabbatarian, that, that means that they believe that, that Sunday is the new Sabbath. And so, uh, on Sunday, we, we should not do any labor beyond that which is absolutely necessary. So a Sabbatarian won't go to a restaurant on Sunday because they don't want to ask someone else to work. They won't do anything but essential cleanup around the house. They won't drive more than a few miles a day because they consider that to be labor. So, so I disagree. All right? I believe that, that Christ has freed us fully from the law, and that includes the, the obligations to the Sabbath that were in the Old Testament. So, so what do I do with this person? You know, I should just accept their standard and support them. You know, what I shouldn't do is, hey, watch this. You know, after church, invite them to go to Red Robin with me, and then when they decline, you know, lecture them about their ridiculous standard why they won't go out to eat on Sunday. I certainly shouldn't have let, it, let it affect my friendship. I mean, I should just give thanks that this person is striving to please the Lord. And to the best of their ability, they're doing what they think is right before God and support them in doing so. So, so embrace them without qualification. It's not that you've got to fix them before you can be close. And then a third challenge is embrace them with proper perspective. So verse 2 says, one person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Now, again, I don't want to gloss over the word faith. He's not talking about saving faith here, but, but he is saying that this person is weak in faith in the sense that they, they have not, they're, they're struggling to rest in the fact that Christ has freed us from the law. And that is not irrelevant. And there, there was a time for that to be addressed. Yeah, but Paul says here that's not the most important issue. And really the implication of verse 2 is that it's not that big of a deal if someone only wants to eat vegetables. Let them be. And praise God that they're striving to please the Lord. Right? I mean, they're not hurting anyone. I mean, you feel sad for them maybe. You know that they're only eating broccoli and carrots. But, but they're not hurting anyone, so leave them alone. And keep perspective on what really matters. Loving that person, maintaining unity, and working together for the spread of the gospel, that matters a whole lot more than fixing his standard. You know, getting him to go to the Gentile butcher. You know, but again, I mean, we can sit here and be like, well, duh. I mean, I would just put up with him. As obvious as that is, we, we have a hard time keeping perspective. Because we get fired up over stuff that really doesn't matter. I mean, just, just think back to 2020, right? I mean, what a year. And I think, really, I mean, our church did extremely well as far as uh, just walking with unity through that whole process. You know, I remember, though, you know, one Sunday, you know, during all that, I, you know, I came into church wearing a mask, you know, and I wasn't trying to make a political statement or anything like that. I was just trying to love people, make people feel comfortable coming to church. You know, and a guy who's no longer around came up to me and gave me a five-minute lecture on why I needed to take that thing off. You know, it's like we're, we're here to worship God. 
We're here to worship God. We're here to love each other. That is not important. That's not why we're here. But we get angry. We get fired up over silly things. And we think it's our job to fix people. And, and we do the same thing with so many other arguments. You know, we get irritated about some little thing. And that little irritation becomes far bigger than actually loving a brother in Christ. And it is so silly, so childish. And notice the perspective that Paul gives in verse 15. He says to the strong, For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Think about that. Jesus died for this person. He loves him. And you are going to let food hurt this person's soul. That person matters so much more than your little irritation. So love people and get over it. People matter. Keep perspective. Another challenge here is embrace them without harshness. So he says in verse 3, the one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. For God has accepted him. So so he says there at the beginning of verse 3, he says that, well, well, he talks there about regarding with contempt. And the idea behind regarding with contempt is to despise someone. It's really that of having a condescending arrogant attitude toward a brother or sister in Christ. And Paul says there is no place for that kind of condescending arrogance in the church. And just because you're right does not mean that you're better. In fact, I think it's really important to emphasize that there is, I would almost be sure that there were probably a lot of the people in the church who were weak in the faith on this particular issue that were actually more spiritually mature and godly than some of the Gentiles who were eating the Gentile meat. So, so this is not like a, just an all-inclusive statement that these are the really mature people and these are the really ungodly people. They're weak on one particular matter. But, but again, we, we oftentimes lose perspective. You know, we start to value issues over people. And then we use those issues to prop ourselves up as better than someone else. You know, God's, but God says that that kind of condescending attitude is wicked. Now, I want to be clear that you should have strong convictions. You should study the scriptures. You should pray. You, you should seek godly counsel. And, and you should come to conclusions about what you're going to do as a person and as a family that you believe are right before God. That's a good thing. But, but at the same time, you have to understand where the word of God ends and where your opinion begins. And there is no room for pride at the foot of the cross. There's only room for humility and for love. So God challenges you here to love with proper godly perspective. And people, people matter far more than, than most of the things that we get fired up about. So embrace humility. Love like Jesus. Keep perspective. 
Sure, there, there are battles and there are fights that you have to fight. There, there are times where we need to confront people. But make sure you slow down and think about what is most important here. And for the most part, accept one another. So, so I mean, Paul, Paul says, look at verse 19. He says, so then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Those are great goals. We want peace and we want edification. So, so the first challenge there is to love with perspective. And then Paul follows with an admonition for the weak. He challenges the weak to leave judgment to the Lord. So he says at the end, well, let's read the beginning in, at the beginning of verse 3. He says, the one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master, he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So again, remember that Paul is addressing those who do not eat. So that's a reference to the weak. That's a reference to the people who thought that they needed to continue to obey these Old Testament laws. And he challenges them, first of all, do not judge. He says there, the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who does not, who eats. Now, again, as I said earlier, for, for a lot of people, this is their favorite part of the whole chapter. I mean, they'll ignore everything else and just focus in on verse 3b. You know, and, and they love to throw it around to anyone who would ever push back on their standards or their convictions. Well, God says, don't judge. So anyone who ever challenges me, anyone who ever questions me, you're just a judgmental legalist, and I don't have to listen to you. you know, for a lot of people, what's the definition of a legalist? Well, a legalist is anyone who is just a hair left of where I, or a hair right of where I am. But God says, don't. And so, so, that's, so, so people abuse that all the time. Right? But, but we know that, that Paul is not forbidding any and all judgment. Because the Bible tells us, for one, to practice discernment. You, you are responsible to discern the difference between good and evil. To learn what best pleases God. That's judgment. And as well, 1 Corinthians 5.12 says that we as a church are responsible to judge those who are inside the church. Meaning that we keep each other accountable that we hold each other to the standards of God's Word. So, so God is not forbidding any and all types of judgment. Because in fact, you know, if, if you're living in sin, and I challenge you about your sin, that is the most loving thing I can do. That's the most edifying thing I can do. Now, so Paul is not forbidding any and all judgment. Rather, Paul is condemning a particular kind of judgment that arises from a sinful heart. And I'd say, first of all, it is a judgment that is based in a self-righteous elitism. As Christians, we boast in the cross. And we say that we are what we are, not because I'm great, but by the grace of God. But self-righteous elitism boasts in me. And a self-righteous elitist is going to use rules, use standards not as a way to pursue Christ, but as a way to make myself look and feel better than the people around me. 
And you can imagine how the Jews at Rome would begin to do that. You know, it, it wasn't just that they believed unkosher foods were sinful. They began probably to use that to make themselves feel a little bit better than all these Gentiles around them. You can imagine them at that church dinner. Look at those dirty Gentiles eating that dirty Gentile food. We are so much more spiritual than that. And that led to a cynical judgmentalism. Rather than assuming the best of these Gentiles, that they were striving to please the Lord, they made harsh assumptions about their motives. Well, the only reason they're eating that food is because they're worldly. And because they don't care about holiness like I do. And we do the same thing. You know, we make harsh judgments so often without any real knowledge of what is in people's hearts. We think that we know. And, and, and so, you know, when someone has a lower standard than us, so often we just assume, well, if they love Jesus the way I did, then they would think exactly like I do. And we harshly accuse them, not just of a foolish standard, but of evil motives, and we do so to make ourselves look better. And, you know, we'll, we'll probably, I'll probably say more about this in weeks to come, but you know, this comes up in parenting, right? So, so I've got a standard for my kids over here, and they see some other family has a different standard that's lower, and my kids start saying, well, why can't I do that? And what's the knee-jerk thing to be like? Well, because your dad's more spiritual than his dad. And if his dad loved him like I love you, then they would think like we do. And we start to make harsh assumptions and make accusations. And it's a whole lot easier to rip that other family than it is to teach your child to think like Christ. So all those things happen very easily. But, but the problem, at least for the Romans, is, is for, particularly for these weak people, is that they're wrong. I mean, verse 3 concludes... God has accepted him. So, so there was nothing wrong with eating these unkosher foods after Jesus freed us from the law. So, so you have to be really careful about cynical judgmentalism. Yeah, because when you are hurt, it is easy to jump to harsh conclusions about people's character and their motives. And so you start accusing people of ungodliness, worldliness, lust, and pride. And I know because I've been guilty plenty of times. And I'm sure you have as well. But I know as well that there's been plenty of times where I've been dead wrong. Where I built up in my mind this, this, all this stuff about someone else and it turned out to be absolutely false. And that's probably true of you as well. So always assume the best, not the worst. And, and so when, when your anger begins to build, you're angry at this individual and you begin to accuse him of ungodliness. Slow down. Check your heart. Pursue love. Be humble. You know, I mean, I've been in conversation with people that, you know, when someone starts a conversation with, now, Pastor, I have the gift of discernment. I know people. You know, oftentimes, not, not always, but oftentimes that's a preface for the fact I don't really have any basis for the accusation I'm about to make, but I think I have the power to see things that no one else can see. And oftentimes we, we just spew nonsense. We think we know things that we don't. Because pride and selfishness will cloud anyone's judgment. So be very careful not to be a self-righteous elitist. 
and resist the urge to cynical judgmentalism. Love people. Be humble. Assume the best. Right? But, but you might reply, well, well, but pastor, I know I'm right. I know he's wrong. So, so, and I have to correct him. I have to fix him. Well, what do you do in those cases? Well, when those fears and those anxieties begin to grow, remember to trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. Verse 4 says, Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now, folks, that is a fascinating verse. And Paul is going to develop that thought more completely in verses 5 through 12. So, I'm going to leave you hanging a bit with the, with the idea of this verse, and you're going to have to wait for some of it until next week. But for, day, for today, Paul says bluntly, God is that person's judge, not you. God is the judge of all men. And he is sovereign over his children, not you. And, and ultimately, it is God's job to make sure that Christian perseveres in godliness, not yours. God is sovereign over their lives in a way that you are not. So stop trying to be the Holy Spirit for everyone. Trust the Lord and let God be God. Now, of course, we have, again, we have, to, we have to put a lot of really important qualifiers on that. Right? So, so God commands us to confront sin. And, and, and as well, God oftentimes uses his church to reveal blind spots in our lives. I, I am so thankful for, for many times where brothers and sisters in Christ came to me and said, you know, this just looks a little bit off. And you might need to think about that. So, so the point here is not that, that we just, you know, we're, we're just looking at everything with rose-colored glasses and everyone's hunky-dory and nothing's wrong and we never say anything at all. God is not saying that we never judge and we never correct. But even when it comes from genuine love, he is saying you need to be careful about trying to be God and about taking on yourself the burden for someone's sanctification that rests solely with God. God is your brother's ultimate judge, not you. And God is the one who sanctifies, not you. Now, I, I love the assurances in verses 3 and 4. I mean, God says to these, to these weak believers who have these higher standards, God has accepted him. And then he says in verse 4, he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. You know, so some of you, you have adult Christian children who have very different standards for their family than you had in your home growing up. And it drives you nuts that, that they're living and functioning differently than you, than you raised them. You know, and so you feel the need to just kind of like jab at them you know, here and there and, and let them know that that's not how you raised them. You're trying to be the Holy Spirit in their life instead of trusting God to sanctify his children. You know, maybe you are hypercritical of certain people in the church. You know, if only so-and-so was more like me. Or, or you think it's your job to fix everything. Now, again, there's times to correct, but there are other times when we just pray. We just pray, and we wait for God to do what God said he will do. Yeah, because God loves his church more than you do. God loves your kids more than you do. And so, you have to trust God at times. 
you have to let the Holy Spirit be the Holy Spirit. And, and so, I mean, I know, I mean, that raises all sorts of questions, and, and I'm looking forward to answering them all next week. <laughs> but, but for now, the, the challenge of the text is very simple. Love well and leave the rest to God. Now, that's not going to solve every conflict, but it's going to narrow the field significantly. Stop worrying about your comfort and focus on loving people and serving them the way Christ has loved and served you. And stop trying to be God. Humble yourself before Him and trust the Lord to do in His people what He has promised that He will do. Heavenly Father, thank You for this wonderful and relevant section of Scripture. And God, we pray that you would give us wisdom and grace. I pray that you'd fill our hearts with love and with faith. And God, that we would love each other and care for each other well in a way that glorifies you and shows Christ to the world. Lord, thank you for the love that we have received in Christ. God, help us to rest in that love. Help us to reflect it. And God, give us grace to do what you are calling us to do in this passage. In Jesus' name, amen.